Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for Computational Astrophysics, where I study explosive transients and the galaxies they come from. I'm Melana Rice. I'm a recent PhD from Yale University, where I studied the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 55. Exoplanets, Exits, and Exciting New Directions. On this show, we've had two types of episodes. Traditional ones where we talk about science, and then beyond episodes where we talk about our experiences and those of other early career academics. This episode is a new type of episode, one that we've never done before. It'll be a little bit of science, it'll be a little bit of beyond material, and it'll be a lot of bit of Milena Rice because today is the final episode that our fearless and fabulous third musketeer is going to be co-hosting with us. Before she leaves the show, we wanted to devote an episode to her graduate school experience, her research path, and her advice for those that will come after her. When we were planning this episode out, we thought about how we might incorporate Milena's research, and then we realized, lucky for us, Milena's research has been the subject of two astrobytes. So Alex and I will be presenting those astrobytes and then asking Milena to fill in the gaps, both in our presentations in the bytes and also in the protoplanetary disks that she studies. <laughs> we'll try to keep a running tally of the number of times that anyone here says the word exoplanet. And if the number exceeds 30, then Milena has to do her best impression of a sonification of an outgassing comet. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. 30 is way too low. <laughs> We already have one, right? <laughs> We've talked about quite a few complex concepts on this show, but understanding Malena is going to require maybe more background than the rest of them. <laughs> so let's start with a few questions about your graduate school experience, Malena. Looking back, do you wish you had done anything differently? You know, this is an interesting question because I feel like you're supposed to say yes to something like you're supposed to be able to think of something but I really don't think I have regrets regarding graduate school like there were some things that weren't great a lot of them were out of my control like you know the global pandemic and all that mm -hmm. heard bad things about that yeah yeah <laughs> but I can't really say <laughs> I wish I did that differently because I couldn't have changed that really mm -hmm. so I think given the resources and the things around me that I had. I think I am pretty happy with how graduate school went. I think I was a surprisingly happy graduate student. I hear a lot of negative things from a lot of people about their graduate school experiences, and it, it certainly hasn't been a total walk in the park, but I've actually had a pretty good time in grad school. So then what was the best decision you made in grad school? Ooh, the best decision? Picking a grad school based on the advisor that I thought would suit me best. So I think that really made the rest of my grad school experience so much better. I really had a supportive network. I had a supportive advisor, which is so crucial in graduate school. 
and it has really been completely irreplaceable having an amazing advisor who's just unconditionally supportive. Could you define what it means to have an advisor suit you? Suit you in what way? It's a great question. I think what I've found really helpful is that my advisor is very good at, at least for me, uh, meeting me where I'm at, but then pushing me a little bit farther. So he's very good at pushing me, but not to an extent that it's overwhelming. So it's in a very healthy way where I feel like I'm continuously growing and I'm continuously being challenged. And so that balance of being able to push hard enough that you're growing and you're, you feel like you're growing at a really good pace, but not too much that you're completely overwhelmed is something that I hope to achieve and that I would love to be able to do for my own students as well. I'd imagine it's also hard to put yourself back in the position of being a first or second year now in the position that you're in where you're working so independently that you potentially don't need as much mentoring as you did when you first started out. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how much, at least for me, the experience evolved from year to year where I felt like from year one to year two was a complete world Mm. of difference and it continued to change. Like every year was very, very different from the previous year. Sure. You mentioned the pandemic being maybe not the greatest spot (laughs) on your (laughs) academic career thus far. Could you just comment on how it affected your grad school experience? Yeah, that was definitely tough. So if graduate school wasn't already isolating, doing graduate school during a pandemic was certainly very isolating. I was lucky to not have to do a lot of lab work or in-person observing. And so the work itself was not directly affected, but it was still indirectly affected in that I couldn't really talk to collaborators easily. I couldn't just go up and ask questions to people in my office, you know, was not seeing a lot of people, which was just difficult in general. Um, And I also didn't get to go to conferences at a really crucial point in my career. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate to have already been to some in my first few years. So I had at least the knowledge of what it's like to be at conferences. But it was, it's been pretty hard to have that torn away, first of all. That was really my favorite part of the PhD program before it disappeared. Sure. <laughs> and they were really my source of inspiration and research, and I've had to recalibrate from there. And yeah, just things like getting groceries suddenly became a huge ordeal. Like I didn't have a car. I was afraid to take public transit. A lot of things in life just became things that I'd suddenly had to think about that I couldn't just do on autopilot anymore. So that was tough. But at the same time, the pandemic also allowed me to recognize that a lot of those meetings and programs that feel like it'll be the end of the world if you miss them, and they're so crucial. It's all a facade. (laughs) (laughs) And so that that was also kind of liberating too, having an opportunity to organize your own time. That actually reminds me, we have a pretty important meeting right after this. So if you could uh, hop onto that, it's only it's only three hours long. Uh, we'll see if I feel like it. <laughs> How did Astra sound bites fit into your grad school experience? First of all, it was just really nice to have another community that was outside of my department that's always been supportive. It's really meaningful to have a lot of those types of communities in graduate school because, again, graduate school can feel pretty isolating, especially during a pandemic. But fortunately, we kept recording the whole way through. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. We were on Zoom way before it was cool. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Zoom hipsters of astronomy. Yeah, yeah, but Astro Soundbites definitely helped me to 
lean into getting more comfortable with talking about my research and with public speaking in general. So this is something that I've tried to do a lot in graduate school. Like I'll recognize one of my weaknesses or things that I'm really uncomfortable with. Public Mm -hmm. speaking was a big one. And I'll try to just lean into it to hopefully make it less terrifying. (laughs) And I think Astro Zone Bites played a really big part in me recognizing, oh, I can talk about research for an hour and it's fine. And it doesn't even have to be my own subfield and it's fine and I can do that. So that's been really fantastic. I will say that in advance of this episode, I listened back to our original uncut episode one. Oh my gosh. Oh, and the no. number of times that we said <laughs> um over the span of that like 30 minute period <laughs> is astounding. Oh my gosh. And the fact that... We still cut some We still them, cut but... some ums, but the fact that the number has reduced so dramatically, I think is a testament to exactly what you're saying of we've just gotten better mm-hmm. at it having done it for 55 episodes now. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Okay, well, we could do this for hours, but you can't delay talking about your research forever. So (laughs) let's start with Will, actually, who's presenting an astrobite about an interstellar visitor with dramatic implications for planet formation. Ooh, can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) This astrobite is called Aliens Among Us, but there's an asterisk, and the asterisk says... Just to be clear, the aliens I am talking about are rocks and are not alive nor intelligent. (laughs) So it's a very narrow definition of aliens. And this was written by Jenny Callahan. The paper is by Rice and Laughlin, published in the Astrophysical Journal in 2019. (laughs) Woo! Also, I'd argue that's a very wide definition of alien, actually. (laughs) But it's not the subject of the astrobite, right? What is the subject of the astrobite? Right. So the astrobite opens by mentioning martian meteorites and i remember the first time i learned about martian meteorites a few years ago at a conference these pieces of the surface of mars that were ejected millions of years ago by impacts and happened to land on earth i actually wrote a story about this and it's pretty crazy that we could learn about mars before we had even gone into space or long before we sent anything to the surface of mars and there are other solar system objects that land on earth too comets, asteroids, meteorites, and some of them are pristine. So we can learn about the early history of the solar system from studying them. And so this astrobite and this paper takes us from this analogy into a much grander scope. Just as we can learn about Mars and the solar system from meteorites, we can rapidly learn about exoplanets and the interstellar environment as objects like Oumuamua, these interstellar interlopers, are detected. So at the time of this paper, Oumuamua was the only confirmed interstellar visitor to the solar system. However, since then, two more have been confirmed, Borisov in 2019 and one about three weeks ago. This Mm -hmm. one was actually detected in 2014, a paper which was never accepted for publication because it received a lot of uh, pushback, was actually recently confirmed when the U.S. Space Command declassified some data from a planetary surveillance network. Wait, I totally missed this in the news. How did I miss this? What? (laughs) There was another one? (laughs) It's actually a comet. It's very, yeah, it's cool. (laughs) Wait, so it's an interstellar comet or it's like from the Oort cloud and perturbed into the solar system? No, no, it's it's interstellar. It's unbound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. It's very cool. 
So what can these bodies tell us about planet formation, Will? Well. Or, or Milena. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> well, the authors of this paper wanted to determine first how frequent these interstellar objects will be in entering the solar system using the detection that was made at the time and the D-sharp protoplanetary disk survey, which is being done using the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, or AMA, which observes in the millimeter and submillimeter. And so you're probably wondering, what do protoplanetary disks have to do with interstellar objects? And to answer that question, uh, Milena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... I think the most interesting part of this paper was really making that connection that is saying, you know, we see all these interstellar objects, we know they had to come from somewhere, but all the exoplanets we know about are actually really terrible at tossing out companion material because they are orbiting very close into their host star, so all of the material is very tightly bound in that region of the system. But if you have longer period planets, then they're much better at ejecting material. So like Jupiter, we expect, would have tossed out a lot of material in the solar system in its early formation. And so the D-sharp survey, what's exciting about it is that it's giving us evidence that there are lots of these long period, probably Neptune-sized planets that are capable of producing this really high background density of objects, of interstellar objects specifically, that we are seeing now and so apparently we've seen three of them which i wasn't even aware of and <laughs> the fact that we've seen that many actually means there have to be many many more that are right. floating out there methodologically how did you make the connection between these observations of the d-sharp disks and planets in formation the authors ran a number of simulations <laughs> 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 they created simulations with three disk systems and three random assortments of dust within those systems. So nine total simulations and ran them for 20 million years. So in 19,999,997 years, we will know the result. <laughs> We're really excited for that episode. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Let's see, Milena, do you remember... How many Earth masses of millimeter dust were ejected by, on average by a forming planetary system? Quizzing me on my own papers. <laughs> That's a new kind of hell. Yeah, I want to say the solar system was something like 30 Earth masses, so maybe somewhere. <laughs> I don't really remember. Well, there, were two, there were two different numbers. One was for millimeter dust and one was for total material. And for the total material, you're right. close. It was about 24. This is what you said in your paper. Mm -hmm. Was millimeter dust 0 0.09? 0 0.09, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good memory. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the 0 0.09 was the direct output from the simulations. And then you assumed a power mm -hmm. law in the distribution of dust, which is pretty good for the solar system at least. And then that's how you got to the 24 Earth masses of total material from millimeter to kilometer. That's what I have in my notes. So then is the primary argument here just that in forming planets, based on our simulations, you will necessarily eject a lot of material, and so some of that could potentially wind up as interstellar objects like the kind we're now seeing in our solar system? Yeah. It's basically piecing together both the process of planet formation and the presence of interstellar objects, and it's trying to say, we know that these interstellar objects probably, at least in many cases, come from planetary systems, so... How does that actually happen? Mm -hmm. And we have forming planetary systems that we can actually study. We don't 
exactly know all the characteristics of them. We don't have confirmed exactly where all the planets are, but we have a sense for what that probably looks like. Is there any way to draw a tighter connection between the characteristics of the interstellar body that we find and the characteristics of the planetary system that ejected it? I think that might end up depending on what exactly we find, because if we find a lot of things that look like Borisov, which was pretty similar to an outer solar system comet, it seems like that would just be saying, you know, outer solar system type comets are pretty common and they get ejected pretty often. If we find other really unusual objects, like Oumuamua have a lot of really strange properties that are still not well understood, then Mm -hmm. it might be harder to draw that connection. It starts to become kind of a theorist playground because there's a lot that you could do with that if you have never seen anything like it before Mm -hmm. and you can try to understand it through a lot of different lenses but it will definitely become more of a challenge but an exciting challenge if we see things that we've never seen before and then it's harder to make the connection i would say if you've never seen anything like it before sure sure but it keeps you employed right yes (laughs) so how many of these interstellar objects would we have to detect to start to do population statistics on them and run more detailed models? I think it would be really great if we could get a size distribution, Mm. which is going to take probably tens of these objects. Individual objects tell you interstellar material sometimes looks this way or it sometimes looks this way, but you don't have a sense of how common it is for it to look one way versus another. Whereas once you start getting at least a a few of them, if not tens, you can start to do statistics. But I mean, right now, even with three, that's pretty, pretty minimal. Right. (laughs) We don't know a lot. You could say two of the three look this way and the third doesn't, but that could very well just be small number statistics. Mm -hmm. Three discovered in just the past couple of years, right? I mean, that's really exciting for what that might mean that you can do in terms of the research in a decade. Yeah, we should be seeing a lot of these objects with Ruben. And so I think that's really where our population statistics is going to come from. And we're still early enough in this, which means that every single detection is going to be its own paper for a little while. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) Borisov was discovered by an amateur. Grab your telescope, go into the backyard, and look up. Maybe you could get a paper out of it. Well, thanks, Will, and thanks, Milena, for bringing us that astrobite. Yeah, thank you, Will. Milena did the heavy lifting, though. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she's bodybuilding now, so it's not surprising. (laughs) And now, of course, we have the small-bodied space sound for stable systems and stellar occultations. You won't get out of having to guess one last time. So close your eyes and let me know what you think this is. Every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. The graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together. Sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it. We call it. We call it. Astro Sound <laughs> Okay, wait, let me just go laugh out. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> pretty good. <laughs> That's, this is the funniest we've ever been. Okay, I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Illinois. Stop laughing. <laughs> All I can see are Malay's nostrils flaring on my video. <laughs> 
good. This is actually true. I didn't know until the election that Donald Trump and Donald Duck were different things. (laughs) I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Illinois. (laughs) Stop. Okay, I'm not going to look at this part of the script anymore. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third year PhD student at Stock. <laughs> I'm going to close your video. Okay. Just don't look okay. at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. <laughs> okay. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. <laughs> <laughs> you really should put some of these bloopers at the end of the episode. <laughs> these are really good. <laughs> I like the ones where you start off serious and then like halfway in. <laughs> okay, we can do this. Uh, gold. Okay, what do you think you heard? Oh. Elena, you go first. I guess it was a mashup of all of our intros. Was it all of them? Was that 55 episodes worth? What do you think, Will? It sounded like the Borg. <laughs> the Borg? What? From Star Trek. That's a deep cut. You want to explain? The Borg is a civilization made up of individuals from other races that were assimilated into a collective, unified in common thought, and it's kind of spreading like a disease, right? They just keep adding people and taking over. And so they speak as all the voices at once. So that's what I thought about when I heard it. That was the energy I was going for with that uh, <laughs> sweet song. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, so maybe it's not that hard to guess what it was. You know I'm sentimental. That was, like you said, Melinda, that was a compilation of every introduction we've ever done. Wow. So the intro and the outro, 55, well, 54 before this one, episodes since November 2019 when we first got started. Hey, episode zero counts. Oh, you're right, you're right. 55 episodes. Yeah, zero indexing. Always messes me up. (laughs) Zero indexing. I know, I know we always talk about how much we hate editing our audio, but as I'm cutting, I actually love listening back to us laughing and being goofy and just hanging out as we talk about exciting new science. I'm really excited to see what the future holds for this podcast, but this is undoubtedly the end of an era. And Melina, we're really sad to see you go. Thank you for everything that you brought to this show and keep in touch. Wow. I'm definitely actually tearing up. <laughs> yeah. Aww. And that was my space sound. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for bringing us that wonderful sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. And now it's time for Alex to present an astrobite about a technique I've been working on to shift and stack my way closer to discovering the elusive planet nine. Dang, I really got to host and present a bite in this episode, huh? Although I guess that's what you're doing too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my astrobite is called Shift Stacking the Night Away. It's written by Spencer Wallace about a paper by Bryson Laughlin, and it was published in the Planetary Science Journal in 2020. So obviously this is Melina's paper, but the real star of the show here is NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short. Dang, that's brutal. <laughs> TESS could be the third author on this paper. It's okay, I'm happy being one-upped by TESS. <laughs> <laughs> 
when you go into space, Milena, and discover thousands of exoplanets, then you can be in the same category. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> now, we talked extensively about tests in episode eight, when Milena was at the Test Ninja conference in Sydney, Australia. Mm. Mm. Back when I went outside. <laughs> back, back when we did those things, right? Back when international travel was possible. But as a quick refresher, TESS was originally designed to look for transiting exoplanets among nearby stars, but it's still chugging along now in its extended mission, mapping out 85% of the sky in a series of 30-minute exposures. TESS data can be adapted for many different research goals, but as in all things in research, the devil's in the details. And this paper lays out a strategy for using TESS data to search for a potential ninth planet in the outer reaches of our solar system. Do we think that there is a ninth planet out there? Why Why are we looking for this? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question, Melina. <laughs> it turns out there are around 100 small rocky bodies that are called detached Kuiper Belt objects, or KBOs, discovered in our solar system that, at close approach, pass greater than 40 astronomical units from the sun. And these KBOs have strangely similar orbital parameters, and some think that this is because they've been collectively perturbed by a massive body, all in a kind of similar manner. If this is in fact what's taking place, the massive body, we think from simulations, should have the following characteristics. One, it should have an eccentricity between 0.2 and 0.5, which is pretty high. It should have an orbital inclination of around 20 degrees and a semi-major axis of at least 400 astronomical units away, which is an order of magnitude higher than these, these KBOs. And we think that it should have a mass larger than the Earth. There's also been a lot of dubiousness about the existence of Planet Nine. At one point, I actually had a conversation with uh, Greg in which he mentioned that the expectation, if it exists, would be that it would be discovered within about a year. And this was five years ago. You talked to Greg? Yes, we met at NASA Ames for the NASA Astrobiology Conference, which is wow. when I was doing an internship there and presented something I was doing that summer. Amazing. Small world. Mm -hmm. People keep saying, oh, it hasn't been published that anything's been found. So does that mean it's not there? And I say, well, I have been applying to things for about six to eight months now. <laughs> so if you don't look. You're not going to find it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, maybe it depends on how busy your grad students are, whether or not you're likely to find Planet Nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody's already found it, and they're just uh, dragging their feet on writing up the paper already. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I would highly doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this should go without saying, but if there is a ninth planet, it's very far away, so it should reflect very little light from the sun, and this makes it incredibly dim. So if it exists, and if it was observed by TESS, it would be so dim in single images that you just wouldn't be able to see it. Still a lot brighter than a lot of galaxies, though. And actually, it's a good thing that you brought up galaxies, because if you're dealing with a very faint extragalactic object, like some high redshift galaxy, you would probably stack multiple images to average out the background flux and increase the signal-to-noise of your detection. But solar system objects do this pesky little thing called moving. Hmm. So not only do we need to stack individual images together, but we need to do this while accounting for the motion of the object between frames so that we always stack the signal in the same pixel. And this is the basis for the method 
that is called shift stacking. How am I doing so far, Melina? It's riveting. <laughs> <laughs> you need to know more. I need to know how this ends. <laughs> <laughs> so introduce shift stacking. The authors start by trying a few different techniques to subtract off the baseline flux in each test image. And I actually have a question for you, Melina. How do you ensure that you aren't subtracting off part of the signal in each of the ways that you do this baseline flux subtraction? Yeah, so I use two different methods. One of them does subtract away the signals of extremely slow moving objects. And so it's probably not as good for Planet Nine, but it'd be better for the more nearby extreme trans-Neptunian objects. And by nearby, I still mean 100 AU or so, but not quite as far as Planet Nine. That's just directly fitting the baseline of the pixel that you're looking at with polynomials. And so there, if you're actually using that pixel to determine the baseline of that pixel, then you're prone to self-subtraction. But another way that I've been using to look specifically for Planet Nine is just using principal component analysis, using pixels that are around the one that you're interested in, but that are not within the expected point spread function or PSF of the object of interest. So if you just say, I'm going to mask out these pixels and just look at the other ones that are nearby, then you know that you're not going to mask out the extra signal. You're just going to get a sense of what the systematics are more broadly within that camera. And if the listeners need a refresher on principal component analysis, we talked about it pretty extensively in our machine learning series. Which is the only reason I know how it works. (laughs) (laughs) We've learned so much. (laughs) Okay, so the authors apply this shift stacking technique to recover the detections of known solar system bodies. Sedna 2015BP519 and TG422. This problem is a bit easier to tackle than Planet 9 because the orbital parameters are known. So the authors know by how much to shift each image when stacking to recover the signal that they're looking for. Ah, so if you don't know the way your object is moving, then how on earth can you use this technique? That's a great question. It turns out that you can start off by making some simplifying assumptions to limit the range of possible trajectories that Planet 9 could take in a series of test images, and then you just try them all out. But... What are all these simplifying assumptions that you can make, Melina? Well, if you just assume that all of the motion is actually dominated by Earth's parallactic motion, then it makes the range of paths that you have to search very, very limited. So the idea here is that these objects are so far away that they're pretty close to static. And most of the motion you're seeing is actually just Earth moving past the static object while Earth is in its orbit. Because of that, it basically just looks like these objects are moving in a straight line because you're just seeing Earth as it's moving past them. So the authors try out all possible trajectories and they keep the maximum flux measured in each image pixel from these combinations of shift stacking attempts. They call this resultant image their best ever frame. And it's how they can go about looking for a planet that we don't know much about. The best ever. I asked Greg if we should change the name from that because I was like, I don't know, this this seems kind of cocky, but he really wanted to go for it. So I was like, okay, best ever it is. Pays to be confident, right? Yeah. So have the authors found Planet Nine? <laughs> Great question, Melina. After verifying that the authors could recover Sedna and 2015 BP519 with the best ever shift stack search, Without using their known orbital parameters, they apply it to test sectors 18 and 19, where Planet 9 is predicted to pass through. 
and they did find 17 new outer solar system candidates mm. that potentially need follow-up to be confirmed. Now, are any of these candidates likely to be Planet Nine? Malena, what do we think? No. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? So all of them would be way too nearby to be Planet Nine if they actually are real objects. We, again, in this particular paper, required that each of the objects was recovered using both of our baselines subtraction methods, where one of them tends to subtract away objects that are very slowly moving. And so we're doing further work to just look at one of those subtraction methods. The main reason we used both was because we didn't have a very good false positive rate. But now we can use neural networks, we can inject signals, we can figure out what actually would be recoverable in each part of the image. And so we're able to actually push towards not doing the self-subtraction thing where we would get rid of anything that looks like Planet Nine. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff, but the candidates in this paper, while they could be interesting extreme trans-Neptunian objects, would certainly not be Planet Nine. Still a very cool set of detections. Yeah, lots of fun. To date, there's only a handful of known outer solar system bodies anyway, right? So even adding to that having them not be Planet Nine is still like an incredibly insightful result, right? Yeah, once you do all the cuts to look at the ones that are actually directly relevant to the Planet Nine hypothesis, so they have to be very distant, they have to be, you know, relatively eccentric, they have to be long-term stable. So when you put them in dynamical simulations, they have to stay in their same orbit for a really long time. Once you look at those ones, they're only maybe six to ten. <laughs> So there are very few objects that are actually going mm. into the Planet Nine hypothesis. So if you find any more, especially if they are orbiting on the opposite side of the sky, that's also really exciting. Well, I'll keep you posted if I find any more. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we want to leave just a couple of minutes left for discussion. So let's end with Malena's one-sentence summary with some advice for incoming graduate students. Oh, so it's supposed to be one sentence. I have so much advice. One sentence. So much unsolicited. It's kind of solicited. It can be it can be a run on. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have three like totally separate directions of advice. Where three clauses. Three clauses. <laughs> <laughs> so the first is take care of yourself and others. And keep in mind that in order to take care of others, you do need to actually take care of yourself, believe it or not. <laughs> so it's really important to not lose track of your own health as you're going through this really grueling degree process. We have more often been talking about mental health, which is really great. And I think that's really important. But also just keeping in mind that physical health is also incredibly important is also something that I think should be talked about more just making sure you know if your body is in a good place it will help your mind to be in a better place too so make sure you're eating well make sure you're exercising and that you're in a place where you're able to do your best work and also lots of other things that make you feel fulfilled okay that's one <laughs> <laughs> semicolon <laughs> semicolon don't compete against anyone except for yourself mm. Academia can be super toxic. It can feel like everyone is out to get you sometimes, but really we can only make it a more positive supporting community if we are not pitting ourselves against each other. You want to be a better researcher than your past self. You shouldn't be pitting yourself against others because that is only going to hurt both you and the people around you. 
So that's something that I think is really, really important, especially in this type of environment where sometimes you can feel very pressured to be competing against other people. Semicolon. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last thing is don't let anyone tell you that you can't be exceptional. People will often try to say like, oh, that's too hard. You're not able to do whatever. At least in my experience, I've had a lot of pushback when I try to do things that are not necessarily the typical route. And you absolutely can do those things. If somebody tells you that they can't, maybe you should surround yourself with a group of people who do believe that you can do it. But yeah, it's absolutely something that you can do. You can find your own ways in which you're exceptional and really pursue those. So yeah, I think that's really important to not hold yourself back just because it's not like the typical route or the typical thing that people do. I feel like we should get that made into a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. It's going to be a long t-shirt. All the semicolons. (laughs) Yeah, I want to wear it to sleep. Surround myself with that wonderful advice. Wow, that's so wholesome. Well, thank you, Melena, for that beautiful one paragraph summary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well said. Really incredibly well said. Thank you. Well, we've covered grad school, we've covered research, we've covered the pandemic, we've covered one paragraph summaries, and now let's cover what comes next. Melena, where will you be this fall, and how did you make the decision? This fall, I am very excited to be joining the test team at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I'll be partying it up with Will. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I... I'm taking a 51 Pegasi B fellowship to MIT, which I'm really excited about because it is funded externally. So it's funded by the Heising Simons Foundation. And I basically get the freedom to work on whatever I'd like to with that funding, which is really exciting. That's kind of the scientist's dream playground where you can find something interesting and you can just run with it. So I am so, so excited to be doing that and to be leading this charge on furthering test solar system science. TESS is continuing to take data. We have so much to learn with the test data, and it's only just beginning to be mined for solar system science. So there's a lot that can be done and that I'm excited to be working on. Awesome. So that's that's where you'll mm-hmm. be this fall. How did you make the decision right. to be there this fall? So I, I finished my PhD in four and a half years. <laughs> And I just applied to all the places that I would absolutely love to be. When I first went into astronomy, I decided, oh, I'll try this out. And I'm going to keep doing it until it's not fun anymore. And I decided if I don't get a job, a place that I really want to be, that's not very fun. (laughs) And so I just applied to places Mm. that I was really excited to go. And I figured, you know, maybe I would just take another year if I didn't get a job. And that would be okay. Or I would decide maybe I don't want to take this particular path. And that's also okay. Because I think I just really like doing exciting work. But that's very broad. Like I'm happy to do lots of different kinds of exciting work. Mm -hmm. And so I was very lucky to have offers at a few of the places that I was really excited about. Um, The 51 Peg Fellowship in particular was really compelling because they sent me a sample uh, grant agreement. In it, they explicitly said some things that to me were a really strong green flag. So for example, they said, 
your research funding can be used for elderly parent care. It can be used for child care. It can be used for whatever will help you to be productive in research. Oh, wow. And that, I think, is really important, recognizing that there are a lot of different ways that people need to be supported, especially if they come from unusual backgrounds where not everyone is going to be able to just you know, drill out research all the time. We have lives outside of our research careers. And so just having that signaled that that was something that they really cared about and that they recognized was really important to me. And it's also a very small community of fellows. So there are only eight fellows each year. And we have a nice little retreat every year where we all get to know each other. The foundation pays for you to get lunch with other fellows to encourage, you know, getting to know each other, cross collaboration. And it just was a really, really perfect fit for me. So actually going into this whole process, I was applying to lots of places, but I knew 51 Peg was my top choice. And that was my dream fellowship because I've just heard so many amazing things. Everyone that I know who's had it has had an absolutely incredible time and has just found it so, so supportive. And yeah, I was really overjoyed when I found out that I had that opportunity and the combination of all of the things that go into the fellowship program that make it so incredible, as well as being at MIT, being in Cambridge, being in kind of an exciting area that's both very intellectually stimulating, but also has a lot of other stuff. It has a lot of mm -hmm. just young people and places to go, things to see. <laughs> so. Can confirm. Boston is a really exciting city. I visited Cambridge for the first time last week and I loved it. Yeah, Cambridge is really awesome. And, you know, New Haven's pretty cool too, but it's definitely not <laughs> Cambridge. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm very excited to just be living in that kind of environment while I'm still young and hip and all that, you know. <laughs> As we come up on time, we're going to do a lightning round. So limit yourself to few words in answer to these questions if you can. Okay. If you can't, it'll get cut. Okay. <laughs> if you could take out a billboard on a major highway, what would you say? What would you put there? It doesn't have to be words. Um, rapid fire. Oh my god, rapid fire. What first comes to mind? First thing that comes to your head. Um, a large picture of a lobster. Next. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Obviously. I, I stole that question from Tim Ferriss. I have to acknowledge that. Who was your greatest inspiration in grad school? I, this is so hard to do rapid fire. Who's my Next question. Sarah, Sarah Milholland. <laughs> she was a couple years above me, and I thought she was just everything that I always wanted to be. Sarah is incredible, and she's both an incredible researcher and an incredibly kind person. <laughs> Favorite painting? Rothko. I don't know. Any of them. <laughs> the Rothko painting. <laughs> the, the one Rothko painting. Excellent. <laughs> Favorite exoplanet? HG80606B. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, how optimistic are you about the future, with 10 being the most optimistic? 8. I think I've gotten more optimistic lately. <laughs> I think that's it for rapid fire round. You're not going to ask about my celebrity crushes. <laughs> wow, you, you wanted us to ask this whole time. <laughs> oh, it's okay. You don't need to. Nobody needs to know. Leave it on a cliffhanger. All right, fine. Who is your current celebrity crush? First and current celebrity crush. you got to give us the answer to one of them. I don't think I have a current one. I think I got past the phase of having celebrity crushes once I turned like 15. But when I was very young, Leonardo DiCaprio and Titanic. 
Specifically in Titanic, not in anything else. Mm. <laughs> Maybe Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet was okay too. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we finish up, I just want to say, Milena, it has been truly a pleasure to build this podcast with you and an even greater pleasure to get to know you as a friend over the past three years. I know I speak for Alex when I say that we have no doubt you will do great things at MIT next year. <laughs> Don't forget to say hi in Boston and beyond. So happy ASB retirement and congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that concludes episode 55, Exoplanets, Exits, and Exciting New Directions. If you want to learn more about the astrobytes we talked about today, you could check out the links in the show notes, but you could also just shoot Melina a message. I'm sure she'd be happy to talk about them. <laughs> you could find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible. Thanks for listening. Wait, wait, wait. Let Melina say this part. <laughs> Go ahead, Melina. Don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Cosmos.